Commerce, Black Booth. If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, if you don't know where that is, is between Judges and Samuel. So if you don't know where those are either, then you can check the table of contents. So. The book of Ruth. I'm excited. We're going to be starting a four-week series as we walk through this book together. You know, the thing about this book is that even before you begin to read the text, it piques interest because it's one of only two books in the Bible that are named after a woman. And even more so, it's not only named after a woman, but it's the only book of the Old Testament that is named after a Gentile, a a non-Jew. What we'll find, I believe, over the next few weeks is that while the author of Ruth is not known, and although it's a historical, it's a real true historical account, this book is just an absolute literary masterpiece. One famous author labeled the book of Ruth the loveliest complete work on a small scale. What Michelangelo's David is to statuary and the Mona Lisa is to paintings, the book of Ruth is to literature. In the book of Ruth, we find a dramatic story that is given in four parts. And as we walk through this first chapter of Ruth this morning, the title for the message is Hope in the Midst of Chaos. Hope in the Midst of Chaos. And as we look at our text, we'll be introduced to this theme that is prominent throughout all of the book of Ruth, and that is the sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty is a word that really we all should know. It's a word that we use, but we may not necessarily be familiar with. Basically, what sovereignty means is that because God knows all, because God is all-powerful, Because God created all, God is in control of all. God's sovereignty is the idea that nothing happens by happenstance, that that everything that goes on around us is a direct act of God, and that God is involved in every aspect of each and one of our lives. If you will, I want to just look at two verses for our reading together, and then we'll go through the whole chapter. If you look at verse 16 with me. Can we get verse 16 on the screens? Verse 16 of the book of Ruth, chapter 1. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we again just thank you for this day and the opportunity to gather and to meet, to worship you, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we look at this text this morning that you remove any distractions that may come up, that you would... Help us to search our own hearts and lives, that we would be open to the work of your word, to work in our hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would be glorified, that Jesus would be made big. Give me clarity of speech and 
Help me to be concise. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all you do in Christ's name. Amen. If anybody has ever started watching a movie in the middle of it, after the movie had already started, you turn to the channel or you go to the movie theater and it's about 20 minutes in, you understand the importance of the opening scenes of the film as you sit there and you're trying to figure out and put together what in the world is actually going on here. And just as starting a movie 20 minutes late can lead to confusion for the remainder of the film, without first knowing the background information, the book of Ruth loses a little bit of its luster, a little bit of its shine. In the first five verses of the book of Ruth, the author introduces to us the setting, the characters, and the primary dilemma and tension of the story. The author begins by sharing with us in verse 1 that Ruth takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Ruth lived during the 400-year period of the judges, which was a time which was characterized by faithlessness and lawlessness amidst God's people. Judges 21-25 gives us a clear picture of this day and age. In verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Like a sparkling diamond set against a velvet black background, Ruth's life and Ruth's story stand in sharp contrast to the dark and perilous times of the nation of Israel. And we see as we continue reading in verse 1 that not only was it a spiritually dark time, but it was also a, a physically and a materially dark time. In verse 1, it shares that there was a famine in the land. We often read the word famine in Scripture, or we hear the word famine, and we just think of this idea of, well, that just means people were extremely hungry. But thousands of years ago, famine was a for sure death sentence. See, the ancient Israelites weren't able to go to the neighborhood Kroger and Walmart and get avocados from Mexico. If their crops were not growing, that meant that they couldn't eat. And if they couldn't eat, they would starve, and starvation leads to death. And want to understand also that this, this famine in the land that's going on reemphasizes and really reiterates the spiritual darkness of the day. God had specifically promised the children of Israel that if they were obedient to him, then he would provide for them. Therefore, a famine in the land meant that the children of Israel were in a time where they were not being obedient to the Lord. As we continue, we are introduced to the characters of the story. See, halfway through the first verse, the author of Ruth has already began to paint this picture of desperate and wretched times, a setting that was absolutely chaotic, a place where no doubt hopelessness abounded, a place where it was during the days of the judges, there's a famine in the land, and then we are introduced to this family, this family of Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion. And we're told that this family is living in Bethlehem when famine comes. And just like every other family during those days, times are hard. This family is struggling. This family is starving. 
I could imagine the thoughts that are running through Elimelech's head as the father and the leader of this household. As he watches day by day his boys grow weak and his wife get skinnier and skinnier. As they look to him as dad to provide. And he's not able to do anything for them. Elimelech trying to figure out what can I do to save my family. And the text tells us that eventually Elimelech gets to the point where he had enough. And he felt as if the only way for me to take care of my family is for me to leave the land that God had promised to his people. Bethlehem was a rich agricultural area. The word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. But times were tough. So Elimelech decides to take his family to the pagan land of Moab. To do so, they had to hike through the desolate Jericho Pass. They had to pass through the Judean wilderness. They had to cross the Jordan River and then enter into the land of Moab. This was a definite departure from the promised land of Israel and and an entrance back into the wilderness from which God had delivered them hundreds of years before. These are clearly steps in the wrong direction. Can I share with you this morning that oftentimes desperation leads to bad decisions. In times of desperation, we like Elimelech fail to see the goodness of God. We begin to question his involvement in our affairs. God, why would you allow my family to starve? God, why would you allow me to lose that job? Why do you allow this sickness and and diseases to continue to plague my body? And it's in these times when we fail to see the goodness of God, which we then turn from him and go our own ways, believing that we know better. May I suggest to you this morning that maybe the suffering that you are going through, maybe the hard times and the hardship that God has brought into your life is purposed by God to draw you closer to him. Rather than running from God, hard times should be the catalyst that propel us into his arms. Knowing that he is the only one that can truly change our situation. Listen, as you deal with suffering and hardship, you can either magnify your situation or you can magnify God. But you cannot do both. And while it seemed like a noble task, I'm going to the land of Moab for the betterment of my family, moving to Moab was a terrible decision that was fueled by desperation. For biblical Israel, Moab is an extremely negative case of foreign people. Moab was a longtime enemy of the Israelites. The Moabs, the Moabites there, the beginning of their nation was formed when Lot's daughter had an incestuous relationship with Lot in Genesis 19. In Numbers 21, the Moabites were hostile to the Israelites as they came out of Egypt during the Exodus. In Judges 3, King Eglon of Moab invaded and dominated the Israelites for 18 years. 
Listen, in Numbers 25, the Moabite woman seduced the Hebrew men into sexual immorality and pagan worship, which resulted in the judgment of death upon 24,000 Israelites. Elimelech's plan was to temporarily stay in Moab until his family was able to regain, regain strength and health. And the text, it says that he was going to sojourn, sojourn to Moab. That word sojourn means to dwell temporarily with the intention of returning. But as we look at our text, we learn that this short trip turns into a long-term stay as Elimelech and his family remain there. You know, it's often said that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Listen, and pay they did as sometime during this, this, this stay in Moab, tragedy strikes. And Elimelech, the father, dies. Listen, the one whose name translates to, my God is king, dies in a pagan land. And though their father has died, as Malon and Chilion begin to grow from boys to men, they keep their father's legacy alive by continuing to make poor decisions. In direct violation of the Jewish law, we see that Malon and Chilion take wives in Moab. They marry these, these Moabite women, these women that are known for their sexual immorality, these women that are known for seducing and trapping the Israelite men, and they take them as wives in Orpah and Ruth. Yet, in keeping with the tragic narrative of this story, we see that not long after marrying Orpah and Ruth, Malon and Chilion both die leaving Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah childless and widowed. In a period of 10 years, Naomi had gone from God's land to a pagan land. She had lost her husband. She had watched her sons marry pagan women. And then she had lost her sons. This is a story that is tragic, a story that there's, there's, there's agonizing, just grievous, chaotic. It's a hopeless story. Understand that to be a childless widow meant to be among the lowest, the most disadvantaged classes in the ancient world because there was no one to support you. And you had to live off the generosity of the people that lived around you. Naomi had no family in Moab. She had nobody to now take care of her. It was a desperate situation, chaotic situation. Listen, her desperate situation in Bethlehem, the famine in Bethlehem had followed her to Moab. Desperation leads to bad decisions, and then bad decisions inevitably lead to more desperation. Yet, while it seems as if all is lost in verse 5, as we look at the rest of this text, we find that there is still hope in the midst of chaos. 
In verses 1 through 5, desperation led to bad decisions. But in verse 6, we are reminded that our mistakes do not have to define us. In the midst of mourning, in the midst of grieving, Naomi gets word that rain has returned to Bethlehem. Naomi hears that God has visited his people and was blessing the Israelites once again. Listen, and when Naomi heard that God was doing a work in Bethlehem, Naomi wanted to be a part of it. Listen, church, when God is moving, when God is working, there should be a buzz. The pagans in Moab were talking about the work that Jehovah God was doing for his people. Listen, my prayer is the same here for our church this morning, that once in famine, God would visit his people and that there would be such a blessing and a hand of God that is so richly on us here that it would overflow into the communities and that people would see that God is doing something. They say, I want a part of that. Hearing of God's goodness in Bethlehem, Naomi goes out from the place that she was. She decides to get up and leave Moab. Listen, this sets Naomi apart from so many other people. Many hear of the good things that God is doing in others' lives and only wish that they could have a part of it. But not Naomi. Naomi, Naomi determined to have a part of it. Naomi could have stayed in Moab all of her life. She could have remained in Moab wishing that things were different. But rather than sitting and sulking, she got up and she heads back to Bethlehem and back to her God. Can I encourage you this morning that when you have gotten away from God and suffering seems to abound, rather than sulking and griping, return to the Lord He is a loving father. He is a father that welcomes repentant sinners. Listen, your bad decisions, your mistakes, your sin does not have to define you. Like the prodigal son, so often we sit in the pig's pen, so often we remain in Moab when God is waiting on us to come back home. So so Naomi grabs her two daughters, she grabs Orpah and Ruth, and she says, come on. She says, God will provide for us, and they head towards Bethlehem. And just as they begin this journey towards Bethlehem, the excitement which filled Naomi begins to slowly wash away as thoughts begin racing through Naomi's head as she recognizes that while Bethlehem may be right For her, she's risking a lot in bringing her daughters with her. As a Moabite woman, Naomi doesn't know how they will be received. She doesn't know if they will be welcomed in Bethlehem. She knows they've already endured enough pain. They've already grieved enough, and she doesn't want to bring more upon them. And as this pep in Naomi's steps turns into a slow mope, and as this smile on her face turns into a frown, Orpah and Ruth notice this change in her disposition. And they tug on her sleeve, Naomi, what's wrong? And heartbroken, Naomi turns 
to her daughters and she begins to cry. I don't think it's a good idea for you to return to Bethlehem with me. Go back to your mother's house. Find a husband and live your life in peace. And Ruth and Orpah begin to break out into tears. They begin to weep loudly with one another. They begin to cry. There's absolutely no way that we are going to leave you. We're going with you and your people will be our people. So this was a trio of ladies who had not only been united through marriage, but they had been united and tied together through hardship and through suffering and grieving with one another. Just imagine the, the emotions that are taking place as they're thinking about this departure from one another. And as the emotions are high, Naomi asked them, why would you continue with me? She says, I don't have any sons for you to marry. And even if I was to have a baby right now, are you going to wait for him to grow up to take as a husband? And then in verse 14, it says that at this point, they again wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law to return to Moab. But Ruth, Ruth clung to her. Verse 14 is the turning point. Verse 14 is the crossroads on which desperation turns into hope. So this word clung is the same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis 2 describing marriage where it says that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave or shall, shall or cl be clung unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Ruth is basically determining, she's saying that no matter what, I'm not letting go. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. There comes a place in our own following after God that it comes down to doing. Ruth and Orpah felt the exact same feelings for Naomi. They both loved Naomi dearly. They both wanted to stay with Naomi. They both were distressed at the idea of departing. But Ruth's love translated to an act of extreme loyalty. Yet, again, despite her determination, Naomi entreats Ruth to go home. Look at verse 15. It says, And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Naomi understands that living in Bethlehem is more than just a change of address. Moving to Bethlehem would mean that Ruth would have to be willing to forsake the Moabite God she grew up with and embrace the God of Israel. And in verse 16, we find that Ruth was willing. Look at verse 16. In response to Naomi saying, listen, go back to your God. Go back with your sister. Go back to your mother. Stay in the land of Moab. Ruth says, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God my God. This verse is often one which is used in weddings, which is, which is great. It's a great picture of loyalty 
but it's an exchange that is made from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. I don't know about y'all, but I've never seen this sort of loyalty between in-laws. This decree of true loyalty, of love, of devotion. And not only does Ruth decide to stay with Naomi, but Ruth in doing so has this salvation moment where she decides to follow the one true Lord This Gentile woman, this woman from the land of pagans, this woman from the land that was known for seducing and and, and, and causing Israelite men to, to go into sexual immorality has now drawn near to God. God is sovereign. God is in control even over our bad decisions. Listen, in the midst of a dark and wicked generation, God used the poor decisions of an Israelite family to bring forth the salvation of a Moabite pagan woman. And as we will see over the next few weeks, this is a woman that was used by God to change the course of history. I could imagine that. Ruth's conversion from a false god to the one true God came as Naomi determined to return to Jehovah God despite all the suffering she had been through. People should be able to look at our own lives the same way that Ruth looked at Naomi's and say, I want your God to be my God. Your trust in God, your turning towards God in the times of desperation, in the hard times of life, will often be the thing that draws others to the Lord. The text tells us that Ruth's proclamation left Naomi speechless. She had nothing to say, and they continued towards Bethlehem. But as you come to the end of this chapter, while we may think that it is, would be a happy ending. What we find is that as Naomi goes into Bethlehem alongside Ruth, people begin to call out to her. They remember her. Naomi, Naomi, is that Naomi? And Naomi turns to them and says, no longer call me Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant. She says, I'm no longer pleasant but rather call me Mara, for God has dwelt, dealt bitterly with me. She had gone from pleasant to bitter. And turning from the land that God had given her and going to Moab and losing everyone that she loved, Naomi had been dealt with bitterly. She was anguished. She was distressed. And just as Moab left Naomi empty, just as the far country left the prodigal son lonely, just as the ship headed towards Tarshish left Jonah in the middle of the sea, when we turn our backs on the Lord and we fail to see his goodness, sin will always lead us to a place of despondency. Yet in the midst of All these bitter circumstances. Naomi was not bitter against the Lord. 
I could imagine as she comes in and she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, that the villagers would be confused and they would be looking at her and saying, Naomi, if God has dwelt bitterly with you, if the Lord has brought you home empty, if the Lord has testified against you, then why have you come back? And I can imagine Naomi saying, because I want to get right with him again. Things have been terrible, and the answer isn't in going further from God, but in drawing near to him. And while this text reminds us of the consequences of sin, of the consequences of turning from the Lord, again, the good news of this text is that God is sovereign even over our mistakes. That even in the background of all the darkness and sorrow that God was still at work. That despite the family's bad decisions, despite the rebellion of Elimelech, despite turning from him, God remained in control the whole time they were in Moab. Can I tell you this morning and encourage you that to understand that the sovereignty of God is perhaps one of the most encouraging and warming characteristics of God. Knowing that God is sovereign is knowing that even when desperation leads me to bad judgments, even when I turn my back on him and rebel, even when I try my best yet I just continue to make the wrong decisions and I fail and I go the wrong direction, that he is working it out. That I can trust him that I can know with full faith that God is in control. Listen, hopefully we never leave Bethlehem for Moab. But if we do, know that God is calling you back home. That God is offering grace on the other side of our failures. The good news is that There is mercy for our rebellion. Listen, there is grace for our grumblings. The good news is that despite our failures, God loved us enough to send his son to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be renewed, and so that we could have a relationship with the creator of the world. As we look at this opening chapter of Ruth, believe the message to us is don't let your sin keep you in Moab. Run to Jesus. Listen, Christ is waiting to end the famine in your life. Believe as we look at this, we are challenged to determine to be as loyal to the Lord as Ruth was to Naomi knowing that because Jesus' tomb is empty, our life does not have to be. So as we look at this first chapter of Ruth, I want to tell you this morning that Christ is the only one who can offer true hope in the midst of chaos. Head bow and eyes closed. Have the worship team come forward.